Welcome to the Invisible India podcast. I'm Jessica Kumar. In 2006, I first came to India for work and basically never looked back. My journey took me through learning Hindi, living in multiple parts of India. The Invisible India podcast isn't just a place where I share about being married to an Indian, being a foreigner in India, the language learning process, and cross-cultural parenting. But it is a platform to highlight the lesser-known aspects of Indian culture by featuring stereotype-breaking Indians making waves in society. So chaliye, headphone lagake suniye hamare saath. Sabko namaste, happy December. Jessica here. Today I'm bringing to you the last episode of 2022, episode 79, the best of 2022. This is where I recap and go through the best episodes, in my opinion, over the last one year. This year I focused really on language and South Asian languages. And in 2021, I focused on bringing South Asian stereotype breakers to the show to share about what they were doing, about their perspectives, their lives, and many South Asian background people who were doing some kind of social service or things that are just making the world a better place. Stay tuned to see what's coming in 2023. So to go back and look over 2022, the best episodes, we're going to start with Elikuti, Eliza Keaton, episode 68 with the ethics of language learning, episode 71, Devika Kariapa, a children's author and archaeologist. She tells interesting stories from the hidden gems of Indian history. Episode 72 is a conversation with two other women who are married to Indian men. They talk about the things that they love about being married to an Indian. One woman, Sheida, is from Iran, and Parnit is French, living in Belgium. Episode 74 is all about boundaries with Indian in-laws. This one I did on my own. Listen to part one as well, episode 73. And episode 76 Indian education versus Western education. We go through the pros and cons and the questions you need to ask if you are thinking about putting your child in an Indian school. So Chelia, let's get into it. But before do that, we do that, of course, I want to tell you about my new course. Right now, there are December deals going on, and this is because I'm just really wanting to get my course out there and wanting to help as many people as possible particularly with the pronunciation course, the new course that I released several months ago. If you sign up for my newsletter, I have deals, a new deal every week in December. So that week, the deal is only for one week of December and it's a different deal on different products every single week. So you can sign up for my newsletter by going to invisibleindiapodcast.com and then there's a pop-up on the right-hand side that will come up or you can scroll all the way down to the bottom or you could just go to the link in the show notes and click on that to subscribe to the newsletter, which I try not to be annoying and I try not to be boring. I try to send things which are relevant. I I send when I put out a new episode and I also send different deals and products, discounts and things, of course, to that end. And of course, deals and discounts and whatnot on my course when they come along. Deals, discounts and special benefits of my course when they come along. 
One thing that I did not mention, but I'm also doing one-on-one coaching and consulting for Hindi learners. The whole point of this is if you're learning and you have something under your belt and you're feeling stuck, this would be great for you. This would be something that I could help you to get to the next level. So typically what I do is I'll go through and I will do a basic, just kind of get to know you thing. Uh, I'll do an assessment of your Hindi and uh, in the like least judgmental way you could possibly think of. <laughs> and then I'll do a basic analysis of what your strong points are and what are areas you need to work on. And then I'll suggest a course of action for you. What are some steps that you can take based on your goals and how to get to those goals with the time that you realistically have in your life. I also follow up with an email with personalized recommendations. You can get that. It's called the Hindi Learner's Corner. It's on my site, of course. I'll put a link in the show notes. But I'm doing those for $75 a piece, and it's for a 30 to 45-minute, usually it goes about 45-minute consultation. I said, if you sign up for the December deals, you might see something coming up in the next week, which, which has to do something with the consultation. So just a nudge, nudge, go and sign up for my newsletter if you haven't already. This consulting, by the way, is ideal for people who already have somewhat of a base, but want to take it to the next level. And that would be if you are completely uh, outside of Indian culture, or if you are a partner of someone from South Asian background, or if you yourself are a person of South Asian background that just hasn't had the right environment to learn, hasn't had the right resources and encouragement to learn, and you just want some help from a non-judgmental person that uh, has been there and who's kind of struggled through learning the Hindi language. And I'm here to help and offer what I've learned over the last 16 years. One question that some people have asked me is, am I consulting for any other languages? And right now the answer is no. And really the reason for that is that I'm really only confident in my ability to assess in Hindi. At this point, I haven't hired anyone else to work with me on this particular thing. But if I hear enough people asking me about Punjabi or Gujarati, I might consider also um, hiring somebody to help me with the kind of assessment part of that and being able to accurately assess your level and what things you could work on. So right now it's just Hindi and Urdu, but I'm open to the possibility of expanding in the future. And lastly, I just want to say thank you so much for listening to the Invisible India podcast and for supporting LearnHindiAnywhere.com. I'm just really, um, really surprised at how much things have grown in the last one year and how um, many people write to me. I'm just really thankful for people who, the, 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 you know, the show is reaching people, the classes are reaching people that have been journeying along similar paths. And uh, it's just really great to connect. This year, one of the observations I've had is I've connected with a lot more NRIs. So non-resident Indians, people, many of you who are living in lands other than India, maybe you grew up in India and you shifted, you transferred, you moved, you got a new job outside of India, or maybe you are first, second, third generation growing up outside of India, and yet you consider yourself kind of still a part of the Indian diaspora. It's been wonderful to connect with so many more diaspora people this year, and I'm just really thankful for you all. 
So Chelly, let's get into the episode 79, the best of 2022. Of course, these are just short snippets of conversations, the full versions. You can click on my website or you can go to the show notes and the link will take you there. So we're starting off with Eliza Keaton, episode 68. We also did another episode together. This is just one of the parts of the episode. This is ethics of language learning. We talk a little bit about getting into linguistic responsibility as a Caucasian white American language learner in a South Asian context. First, by saying that so many people learn so many languages because they have to, right? Like, you know, you look at India, people speak their regional language, maybe even a local dialect or a local language, and then they speak, you know, English and Hindi and, and, and things like that. And it's just nobody asks them like, oh, wow, how did you learn so many languages? So I just want to preface that by saying, like, what I do is not by any means super extraordinary. And I'm really glad to get the support that I do. And I think that for me, because I have the privilege of not being obligated to learn the language, I don't need it for a job. I don't need it. That makes me much more casual in my approach to learning the language. I do it for fun. And as long as it's fun, I study it. If I if it's not fun, then I take a day off. I take a few days off. So whether it's practicing conversation with my husband, watching a Mayala movie, you know, I'll learn a few words and keep using them, making videos for Instagram. So and I think the biggest thing for language learners is there has to be context to what you're learning. You can't just memorize a hundred words that you may not use in everyday conversation. You know, what are the things that we learn quickly in a language? Hi, my name is, I'm from, you know, these kinds of things. So then, you know, learning different contexts has been really helpful in talking about going to the store or talking about movies or what did you do today? And because I just learned things very casually in bite-sized chunks and fun, and in, that's what's helped me with my longevity. A lot of people will look at the way I speak Malayalam now and be like, oh, I can never speak like you, which by the way, it's, <laughs> but I'm saying you're seeing three and a half years of, you know, casual studying, you know, you can't do this in 90 days or you can't do this in 30 days. And I think people want to get to the end result right away. They want to be like, I want to be fluent. And it's like, en enjoy the language, enjoy the process, understand it. And I think that your interactions will be much more meaningful when you're working within that language. Yeah. A couple of points that you shared is I think as Americans, because as we're looking at, at, at both of us who have learned Indian languages, there is this mentality, right, of, oh, this is such a big thing. This is such a huge step for us. And for Americans, really, it, it, it kind of many Americans uh, who are not a multicultural or haven't been exposed to different languages from a young age. Like it is actually a huge step. And as you as you clarified there are, most of the world is multilingual, right? Most of the world's at least bilingual, trilingual, and, and also multiliterate, like able to read and write multiple languages. This is not something that's unique to you and I, you know, people who've been able to learn Indian languages. You go to Myanmar, you go to uh, Malaysia, you go to so many places around uh, South Asia. You go to Afghanistan. You know, you'll hear people who are speaking Urdu or have, you know, oh, I watch Bollywood movies or, oh, this and that and the other thing. 
people, people are doing it for fun. People are doing it for jobs. People are doing it for as like a trade language. So there's so many different reasons why people will want to learn a language. And I think for you and I, there's kind of this one, not one angle. I don't want to call it an angle. That sounds bad, but just one point of view that we're coming at it from. And that seems to be kind of the sexiest or the most exciting of, you know, oh, look at this a white lady who's learning a new language. And I, it, the bar is so low for us that I think that's why people get so enamored. Next up is Devika Kariapa, episode 71. She is an archaeologist who also has become a children's author. She is published with Tulika Publishers. You can see the link in the show notes. And has a passion for turning dry, dusty old artifacts into engaging stories that we can feel the drama and understand what was really happening in that time. Hear what she has to say. I was in this deeply academic environment where I was learning how our histories, our knowledge of our histories are constructed using archaeological means. And it's a very serious environment with a lot of, you know, artifacts, bones, dry as dust facts and enjoyable, but very dry. And I started seeing in them stories which had um, elements of sort of drama and uh, adventure, excitement, romance, a lot of things that I thought even then would appeal to children. And I started uh, to my, in my head, even though I was in this very academic environment, I started thinking about how these stories could be possibly written down for children. So it sort of mulled in my head for many years. And I started writing these little vignettes of, of uh, archaeology. Uh, I'll give you an example. I used, you know, there's a very dramatic headless statue of Kanishka in the Mathura Museum. I used that as an entry point to, to, uh, to explain what India's position was on the Silk Road, uh, to talk about Gandhara and Mathura art. Or I used hero stones, which are very common in South India. You find them just lying around on, on not street corners, but definitely on the roads, on the highways. You see them, what sort of uh, events happened in their lives. Ordinary people, not kings and queens, but ordinary people. Given your very different background from what I assume uh, several other children's authors may have, if they might have been in journalism, they might have been in creative writing, they might have been in media of some sorts. Um I'm very curious to hear from your perspective, what are your thoughts about the state of children's literature in India as from your point of view? Do you think there's uh, different areas which you'd like to see expand? Would you, uh, anything that you think is missing? Indian children's literature has, well, firstly, it's as rich and vibrant as India is. Because, uh, you know, the Sahitya Academy recognizes 24 languages. Like when I got the award, it was along with 23 other people who were being awarded for their literature in their languages. So Mm -hmm. it's very vibrant Mm -hmm. and it has a long history, you know, uh, right from the days of the Jataka tales to the Panchatantra to to the Bengali, a very well-known Bengali sort of body of children's literature. But it's come a long way from the times when it was more sort of didactic, 
moralizing tales that were sort of thrown at children and they were expected to sort of imbibe mm. remarkable publishers. One among them, of course, was Tolika, but there are many others now who are really well-known and open to new ideas and exploring uh, different subjects, very inclusive. And there are equally talented authors and illustrators. So the scene is really vibrant. It's a great time to be a children's author. And uh, it's a great time to be a reading child. Next up is episode 72. This was a fun one. We just did a casual conversation uh, with Shayda from Iran, who's now living in Canada, and Parnit, who is from France, now living in Belgium, both married to Punjabi guys. And just hear a little bit about their perspective. Of course, I didn't mean to um, oversimplify what it means to uh, engage with Indian culture, but these two ladies shared some of their high points about things that they love about being alongside Indian culture. I have asked two other women to come on and share their perspectives. First woman is Shayda from Iran slash Canada. And she's talking about her relationship with her Punjabi husband. The second woman is Barnit from France slash Belgium and also her Punjabi husband. Those of you who know me, I'm Jessica and I'm married to Abhishek who's from Bihar. I'm from the United States but live full-time in India? I've asked three questions, and these are not meant to oversimplify or fetishize Indian people. We're going to talk about just some of the cultural differences uh, that we can't deny that are there from being uh, a person of a different culture and being married to an Indian person. So the three questions are, number one, what is a thing that you enjoy about being married to an Indian person? Second, is what do you enjoy about Indian culture? And third is what is a challenge that you have being married into Indian culture? So we're gonna go through these three things with three women. Let's go. Hello guys, my name is Shayda. You Indians usually call me Shiny G and I'm Iranian. My husband is Punjabi. I love Indian food and having an Indian husband give me a good chance to eat a lot of them. What I like about Indian culture is their song, their music and the clothes. I like lehenga and sari. Of course, a biggest challenge to have an interracial marriage is language. And that's why that I'm learning Punjabi. My name is Parnit. I am basically from French background, so that means uh, I grew up in France, live in France all my life, and we are basically a Christian uh, family, but uh, we are not too much um, inside the practice of religion, basically. Uh, after that, I moved uh, to Belgium in 2012, and I meet my Punjabi husband. For me, there is something big uh, in Indian culture that you you will find nowhere. In Europe, we don't have this system about the family. Family notion and family uh, dimension, it's really a big thing in India. Uh, everything, it's every decision, uh, everything in the house, it's made 
according to the family living there and when you are a son-in-law daughter-in-law something like me and you really feel include yeah inside this family so that means you are not uh, a piece of cake from outside or something like this but you are really include and your decision you're talking they are they are take inside the family matter thank you bye <laughs> All right, my chance now to give my thoughts. I have, grew up in the United States and uh, in the Midwest and now have lived most of my adult life in India. However, uh, there are still challenges and interesting things that come up all the time. I would say for me, one of the things I love most about being married to an Indian person is uh, just the, the sense of people are so invitational towards you as a part of the family and kind of how you have a, a given role in the family. That's something very unique. I think in Western culture, that's just not there. It's like, there's no expectations specifically laid out for you as an individual or as uh, in your role in the family. And so I really love that about being married to Abhishek and being married in a Bihari family. Second question thing that I love about Indian culture, I mean, others have mentioned the food, that's an obvious huge win. But to go a little bit deeper, the community aspect, people really are uh, you know, in each other's lives and care about one another, um, are also just keep in touch, know what's going on in each other's lives, ask the right questions. People are constantly asking questions, how you're doing, what's going on. People might get very annoyed with that and say, you know, just leave me alone, I'm trying to live my life. Uh, but I actually enjoy a lot of that. And third, one challenge that I have uh, living or being married uh, to an Indian person. You know, we have a very different sense of what personal responsibility looks like. So there are things that in my mind fall like very clearly in my court and things that fall very clearly in his court as far as responsibilities, things that should be done. And I think he has a more, uh, or I think in many Indian men have a more like fluid notion of what that could look like. So, for example, if, uh, you know, there's an expectation of like helping each other out with things and that very much I've seen across the board in uh, a lot of Indian families, <laughs> my mother-in-law, I'm picking on her. She, uh, you know, is, was not in the greatest health a couple of years ago. And we were asking her, my up, up, like, why don't you go out for a walk? Why don't you go and do something? She's like, Beta biti nahi chalate to hum kya kare? Like basically, beta biti zabardasti nahi karte hain. Humko leke nahi jate to hum kya kare? So basically, she was saying that my daughter and son aren't here to take me and make me go. So it's not my fault. <laughs> right? So there's the kind of uh, expectation of, well, someone else should be there to like encourage me to do it. It's not my fault. Right? The personal responsibility is quite different uh, in, in certain aspects. So I think that would be a huge cultural difference that uh, after 12 years, almost 12 years of marriage, I've uh, still still wrestle with at times and still <laughs> kind of roll my eyes at at times. And that's something I don't think you quickly get over, uh, get over as an individualistic American. Episode 74, 
is about boundaries with in-laws. This one, again, was just a solo episode. I did a part one and a part two. This is the part two, which get a little more deep into some of the commonly asked questions about having Indian in-laws. And I, I went a little in depth with how do you create boundaries in a culturally appropriate way. Expectations, how do you handle different expectations with your in-laws, what are the deal breakers, yours and mine? This is probably the biggest question that you could possibly ask of any relationship, <laughs> much less of a cross-cultural relationship. I think that when you are dealing with expectations, it's really, really good to get clear with your partner on what their expectations are and what they suspect their parents' expectations may be of you and of them. Sometimes it's hard to know until it happens. Um, one of the things that I would advise is to look at other relatives that are, that are around the same age as you, maybe in a similar situation, and try to see how their parents reacted to them in different life decisions that they made. It's very important, especially in Indian culture, to um, for other people kind of compare themselves uh, as elders or as, as uh, siblings. People are constantly comparing themselves to their relatives. So seeing how uh, cousins uh, reacted to certain things or aunts and uncles reacted to certain things. If you don't have a precedent at all, then um, it's likely that you're, you may be in a totally kind of uh, disconnected community or your in-laws uh, immigrated from somewhere and they're kind of in a different situation. So it's hard to say. That's the number one thing I would say is go look around and, and see. It's gonna be very hard to ask directly um, how many kids do you expect us to have? Or on holidays, what do you expect me to do um, when I don't know about these certain rituals, but I need to carry them on anyway? Like, it's very hard to ask those things. Uh, and so it's going to be by trial and error, and it's going to be by observation. For example, if there is a ceremony coming, um, a big one, let's talk about this. This is a tough one. Head shaving ceremony for children. This is one, uh, especially in North India, that a lot of people struggle with from a Western perspective. Is it, how important is that to your in-laws and how important is that to you? This is not one of those things that you can ask ahead of time. Like, oh, if someday we have kids, would you want us to do the mundan sanskar? Uh, it's very tough to, in, in that moment, ask. And I think a lot of those things go through negotiation. If you've already been through a number of holidays with your in-laws, they're more likely to defer to you and say, hey, you know, whatever you want to do um, if you've cooperated in other things. What I like to do and what I advise people is pick your battles. And if it's, uh, you know, oh, can you please wear this on this occasion or can you do this on this occasion? If you're willing to compromise or move a little bit towards them in those situations, a lot of times when the bigger things come, like if you want to shave your child's head or if you uh, are going to circumcise your son or not circumcise your son or things that are actually kind of a life altering or a decision, what you're going to name your child um, or, or what kind of a ceremony you're going to have for your wedding, uh, th those kind of big ones, I would say cooperate in the little things. And then when it's actually something you really care about, 
that's when you have a little more leeway to say, hey, this is what I actually want. So that's my advice. Um, I think a mistake that a lot of people make is they make really harsh boundaries in the beginning. I'm not gonna touch their feet, or I'm, uh, I'm not gonna learn to cook, that's sexist. Or uh, I am not going to um, call um, this relative auntie and uncle, I'm just gonna call them by their first name or whatever. How important is that actually <laughs> in the grand scheme of things? Um, I think being willing to compromise and being willing to pick your battles goes a very long way. Let's talk about boundaries. This is a hot topic, important piece of conversation. What boundaries look like in a Western sense and what boundaries looks like in a communal culture, shame honor culture, or less individualistic culture like India look very different. So if you tell someone to their face, um, you know, please don't call me after 10 p.m. because I'm sleeping, and they continue to do that, um, in a Western sense, that's super rude. Like, you are disrespecting my boundary. It, you, you need to stop. Um, however, in an Indian sense, how you would deal with that is just not answering the phone, turning off your phone, silencing them, maybe blocking that number after a certain time. And there's the indirect communication that they will figure out you're not gonna pick up your phone after 10 p.m. Or if, um, or if there's a problem with the child of, you know, please don't, um, I mean, I've had plenty of conflicts with, with uh, um, disciplining and um, um, managing my kids uh, with my in-laws. Um, for example, I'll share one. I had asked uh, my in-laws not to feed sweets to my children because it often would spoil their dinner. And I don't care if they feed sweets to them at certain times, but um, being a Westerner, I tend to eat earlier. So in India, a lot of times you'll have dinner at 10, sometimes even 11 p.m. and then go directly to sleep. I don't like that habit. It doesn't work for me physically. And I don't want my kids to form that habit either because uh, it's, you know, whatever. We have obese, a lot of obesity in my family and I just don't want my kids to get into that habit. Um, so I had asked I eat a lot earlier. I'll eat, uh, at, we'll eat at like 7 p.m., which is super late for some Westerners, but it's way early for Indians. So my in-laws would think, okay, this is snack time. It's around 6 p.m. Uh, I can just give the kids candy. And I would request like, please, you know, please don't give candy. Please don't get give candy. Um, so one of the things we actually ended up doing was instead of please don't give candy, please don't give candy and having it be this big conflict all the time was I would ask, um, I would call ahead of time and say, um, uh, hey, our son really wants to eat some of your fresh prata um, to my mother-in-law. And uh, could you make some prata instead for him? So knowing that uh, they want to feed, the point is they just wanted to feed the kids something as an expression of love. And candy is an easy thing. But even better, I've asked, can you please make this prata, which our kids love, which is also healthy. And is it going to spoil their dinner? Sure, but who cares? Because it's somewhat uh, somewhat healthy and it's not candy. And the, uh, the point has been accomplished that grandparents were able to feed the kids something and it's able to go. So that boundary was something that I could have dug my heels in and said, don't feed candy, don't feed candy, don't feed candy, don't feed candy, and then stopped going over there and made a big deal about it. Or you could just say, let's do this instead. Um, 
and uh, and that and that can work. So again, it's 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 drawing these like firm lines in the sand doesn't always work, but letting the natural consequences of things roll out can also um, sometimes be in your advantage. I hope that example made sense. And the last one I wanted to highlight this year was episode 76 on an Indian education versus Western education. This is a question I get a lot is how do you do this whole schooling thing between two countries? The answers are in the episode. Of course, like I said before, you know, this is, these are just snippets of the episode. This is not the full episode. Go and click on the links below to um, get the full episodes of all of these. These are three to five minute snippets. So how do you choose a school? Here is my list of questions to ask not only the school, but other parents who have sent their kids there. I think it's really important to consider that. What are the other parents' experiences? They may or may not be in the same life phase as you, but how does their experience measure up to your experience. If you ask the school these questions directly, they're never going to give you a straight answer. That's just how it is in India. But you can find out from other people. If you ask straight up, do you hit children when they're misbehaving? Every single school is going to say no. You need to probe more. You need to ask other parents. And what I would rather ask is a specific situation. What would you do if a child didn't wear their uniform? What would you do if a child didn't do their homework? What would you do if a child got in a fight in the class? What would you do if the child was being disruptive? If you ask, oh, what's your discipline strategy? Most schools don't have a discipline strategy. It depends on the teacher, and the teacher can do whatever they want. You have to ask specifically what in those situations, what would be done. And if they don't give you a good answer, that shows you right there that they're not actually thinking through the behavior. They're just reacting. That might be a red flag. Um, we have definitely had, uh, asked this question of, well, how do you discipline the kids? And they're like, oh, we never, we don't do that. And I straight up asked, do you hit children? Never, never. And in two of the schools that we put our kid in, in India, uh, he was hit both times in, in the class. Definitely traumatizing for him as, you know, other kids, I guess, get hit at home. But, uh, if you're, if you're not used to being hit at home and being hit in the school in front of everyone, that's kind of traumatizing. Another thing to ask is about the homework and what are the expectations of hours of study at home? Um, how much homework does the child receive per day? That's an important question to ask to find out what's their expectation. Is it 10 minutes? Is it an hour? Is it every single night? What kind of homework? Is it projects? Do you as a parent need to be involved? That's kind of a big deal to find out. A major one that actually was a big source of tension for us that I never would think to have asked is how do I communicate with the school? In India, Specifically, a lot of the schools have tons and tons of students and they have very specific systems that you have to follow in communicating with the school. For example, the school that we put our daughter in, uh, we had, it was this huge convent school and they have 4,000 students. And I would have assumed that we would have every communication by WhatsApp or you could just ask a question to the teacher by phone. Or if there's an absence that's required for the student that you can just let the teacher know or, you know, send 
a note in their backpack or whatever. It doesn't work that way. We had to hand submit what's called an application, which is basically a handwritten note explaining why the child is going to be gone and you have to go submit it at the school during their visiting hours. It just was so annoying. I'm like, you're telling me you have 4,000 parents doing this for every time that there's an app, an absence or a sickness. Like you can't just call the teacher. You can't send an email, forget email. They don't use email. WhatsApp message, text. You can't do that. No, it had to be in person. And they somehow didn't like my typed uh, applications either. That just seemed absurd to me. They wanted it handwritten. It just seemed weird, the whole thing. So finding out how the communication needs to be with the school uh, might be a make it or break it kind of situation. This is a, a, a minor note too. One school we were looking at for our, our, uh, our son, uh, the uniforms just looked treacherous. They looked so uncomfortable. I thought he's going to hate me every day. He's never going to wear this. And, you know, just the, the whole sensory experience of wearing this rigid shirt. And I'm like, I'm going to have to wash and bleach this white shirt with these suspenders. And that's going to be terrible. I'm not putting my, I'm not, even, I just decided for that reason itself, we cut that school from the short list. <laughs> just those kind of small things you should look at and realize that these small things can really impact your child and uh, make it easier and more difficult for them to learn. So again, thank you so much for listening to the show, for taking the course, for telling other people about the courses. I'm really so blessed and so thankful for all of you who are my faithful listeners. I just went through my Spotify wrap for the year and it just shows so much that so many of you listen in literally every <laughs> every time I put an episode down. It's shocking to me how many of you are listening to it within the first couple of hours. And I'm just really thankful for that. To keep the Invisible India podcast going, I want to ask for your support on Patreon. It's one way that you can help me to make the show better and to keep it going. Honestly, it's been a challenging year to keep this show going. A lot of the focus has been on the Hindi courses and whatnot. Still basically a one-woman team. I do have some help with my video editing and social media, but the podcast is all me doing everything on the back end. So I appreciate all of your support and the uh, Patreon is one way that you can tangibly show that. It, you can do from anywhere to three, eight or $15 a month support and that gets you exclusive content and also um, personalized uh, messages from me. I also often will give advice or tips that have to do with relationships, Hindi learning, or life in India. And that stuff that doesn't come on the podcast and doesn't go on my public social media. So um, just something to note there. And then, you know, basically you can ask me questions and I will answer them <laughs> through that medium. Uh, I don't always answer all the questions that people ask me on um, social media. And this is a guaranteed way that, you know, hey, if you if you want to talk to me about any specific issue, whether that's relationship, immigration, uh, any of those things, that is where I really um, that's where I really give that kind of personalized, close attention. So, again, thanks again. I appreciate you all so much. Happy 2022. Let's finish it well. Looking forward to bringing you more in 2023.